podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care help, who seek expert advice, and who want news about aging, health, and design trends to live longer in our homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, TV interviewer, host, and producer. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore solutions that lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This is our premier podcast episode, and you know, for a long time, Everybody's been asking us, what are you going to do a podcast? And so you asked and we answered just in time for November, National Family Caregiver Month, and we're excited to be here. So what are we going to focus on? Well, we're going to be talking to you about caregiving, but we're going to focus on what's the latest news, trends, reports, research, studies, different things that are out there. We're going to talk to a lot of our guest experts who have a lot of solutions and a lot of services that will help you out. We're also going to talk to some celebrity family caregivers about their stories and their journey. And we're going to really focus on caregiver self-care and wellness, but also wellness design for our homes, both for ourselves and our older loved ones. How do we live happier, healthier, and longer in our homes is going to be part of our focus. And then we're going to bring you at the end of every episode, our Me Time Monday wellness hack, which is going to be anywhere between one to five minutes. It's a tip that we'll give you on how you can find that calm and that balance in your life. So because this podcast is for you, the family caregivers out there, we want to hear from you. We would love it if you would email us at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you'd like to hear about, you know, topics or guests that you'd like us to interview. And yeah, we'll take some of the critics too, but just keep it kind. You know, the word is today is kind and kindness. So, but we're happy to hear from you because this is a podcast for you. So let me break down what we're going to have in the podcast for today. So I'm super excited We have our celebrity caregiving friend, Joan London, who is with us. We have an interview with her. She's going to talk a lot about her caregiving journey and also self-care and aging well. Aging well is definitely what we associate with Joan. And then, as I said, we're going to bring you the latest news in caregiver wellness and also wellness home design. And we're going to talk to two experts because not only is it National Family Caregiver Month, but it's also National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. So we have two experts. The first is Brooks Kenny, who's the general manager of Brain Guide, which is a wonderful new resource for families. We're going to learn all about Alzheimer's risk, brain health, and what maybe we could do to prevent Alzheimer's and what you can do online as an assessment to let you know where your cognitive health is for you and for your family. And then we're going to talk to George Netcher, who is the CEO and founder of Safely You. And George has come up with some really innovative solutions for how to prevent falls in the home, but especially for those with Alzheimer's and dementia. So we're really excited to have our two guests on today. And as I mentioned, we're also going to do our Me Time Monday wellness hack. So today's wellness hack is going to be five senses workout in five minutes. And so stick with us till the end of the podcast and we'll take you through that brain health workout for Me Time Monday. 
before we launch into our celebrity spotlight interview with Joan London, we've got some of the latest news and caregiver wellness to share with you. First of all, there was a recent study that came out, and I can personally relate to this. It came from the American Psychological Association, and what it showed is that 42% of all American adults gained on average 29 pounds during the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm raising my hand. I was one of those people, although I didn't quite gain 29 pounds, but it was enough. And so obviously working from home, not getting out as much, certainly not socializing, all contributed to, I think, what was happening for a lot of people out there. And we do know that not being able to maintain a good diet and a healthy body mass index, not gain those extra pounds, get out and move. And also really the socialization part of this is so important for our health. And I know it's really difficult for family caregivers when you're juggling so many different things. Maybe you've got kids at home that you're homeschooling. You've got older parents that you're worried about whether they're living in assisted living or living at home alone, how to manage the care for them. And the last thing that you're focused on is your own health and wellness needs. So one of the things that I wrote about, it's in my new book, which is coming out soon. It's called Me Time Monday, Weekly Wellness for a Wonderful Life. And I wrote about the sunshine diet. So I'm not going to give it all away because I I would love it if you you could read an excerpt from the book on our website at caregivingclub.com. We'll have a link to the article under this episode guide page for this particular podcast episode. So you can check that out, but it really helped me shed those pounds that I gained during COVID. And I hope that you will find it. It's really easy to do. It's not one of these fad diets. It's just based on some good common sense, but it's really kind of almost fun because it's all based around what I call the sunshine diet. So you can go check that out on our website. The other thing is, as we know, it's National Family Caregiver Month, and it's also National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. And there was a study that recently came out from the University of California at San Francisco that showed that depression that we have earlier in life. So maybe when you know we were a teenager or in our 20s, or even thinking about now our children, who are younger, the younger generations that are really kind of suffering from mental health issues, but particularly depression. What this study found is that is going to potentially increase your Alzheimer's risk later in life by 73%. That is significant. And I think, again, what we're seeing is, you know, we focus so much on our bodies and our physical health, but it's really this mental health emotional health, being able to deal with anxiety, deal with depression, build up our resiliency, become, you know, feeling empowered again and in control of our lives is really critical for every age. That's a really significant study. Again, we'll have a link to that study on our podcast guide page so you can check that out. And then let's turn now, you know, talking about mental health and emotional health. So there's a lot going on in the workplace. You know, a a lot of us, there's so much uncertainty. Some of us have maybe been able to go back to offices. Other companies have made decisions to hold off going back to the office. Some of us have a hybrid schedule. You know, we're working from home some days and, and going into the office on other days. So everything is really been kind of up in the air. And, and even still, things are really not certain with all the different variants of COVID that have been happening, how that picture is going to look over the next few months. So there was a report that came out called the CARE 
well-being index done by Embracing Cares organization. And what they found during COVID is that caregivers expressed 72% of them said, yes, my emotional health has definitely been negatively impacted. In fact, I'm feeling a lot more burnout with COVID and caregiving and all the other responsibilities in life. No big surprise there. Now, the younger generations of caregivers, so those 25% of millennials who are also caring for maybe a parent or a grandparent or an in-law or another older loved one, they had 80% of that emotional health impact and burnout. So again, employers are really paying a lot of attention to this. There's been a lot of benefits that have either been added to employee benefits in the workplace or been better communicated so that you know what you have. But I would say really check out what your employer offers because I think employers, I know that at least 25% of employers added emotional health, wellness, meditation, mindfulness, all different kinds of different programs and services that can help you as somebody who is working and juggling all those balls in your life. So you can check that out. And there's also a really great report. If you really want to dig into this, for instance, if you're listening to us and you happen to work in HR, there was a really great report from our friends at the National Alliance for Caregiving. And it was called Caregiving During COVID-19 lessons from the workplace. And I have a link again on our webpage for this episode that you can go to. I was really, really honored to be part of the task force for the National Alliance for Caregiving that worked on this report, but it gives you a lot of in-depth what's going on in our workplaces when it comes to caregiving, whether that's you know paid family leave, more flexible benefits, emotional health benefits that we just talked about. So you can really do a deep dive on some of those different things and get a link from that in our episode guide page for this particular podcast episode. And so that's it in terms of caregiving news. Now I'm going to turn to something that's maybe a little bit more fun, and that's pop culture. We always like to see what's going on in the world of movies and entertainment and books and all kinds of things in terms of caregiving. So I'm going to share a couple of things with you. And actually, these are these are my movie reviews for you for this month. So again, you know, National Alzheimer's Month, National Family Caregiving Month, I have a really great movie if you haven't watched this yet. It's called What They Had, and it stars Blythe Danner and Hilary Swank. And what I really love about this movie is it focuses on a family that's dealing with Alzheimer's. Blythe Downer plays the mom who has Alzheimer's, but it really speaks to what everybody in the family goes through. And so, you know, her husband, who was her primary caregiver, trying to keep her at home and keep her safe and keep her from wandering off. Her son, her adult son, who lives nearby, but he's more concerned now about his dad whose health is really impacted. And then Hilary Swank, who plays the daughter, she lives long distance. So she comes in for a family visit and cannot believe what she's seeing because she had no idea, which is, you know, very common, I think, with those of us who are long distance caregivers. You know, we come in for the holidays or a celebration. Everybody puts their happy face on. We don't see the day-to-day struggles. Anyway, it's a fantastic movie. It was actually written by Elizabeth Chomko, who is a screenwriter and a director who happens to live down the way from me here in Southern California. She's in Laguna Beach and I'm actually in Newport Beach, but she wrote it based on stories in her family. So it's a very personal thing for her, but it's a fantastic movie. And it's not, it's not one of those movies that really brings you down. It actually gives you a lot of insights as to how families can manage through these kinds of things. So I really recommend that. Now, if you're not up for that, 
then I absolutely, one of my go-to movies for anything, but mostly for romance, is The Notebook. So, of course, this was starring the yummy Ryan Gosling and the wonderful Rachel McAdams as the younger couple. And then their older selves are played by Jenna Rollins and James Garner, two like super fantastic actors in Hollywood over all of these many decades. But it's a really wonderful story. It's actually based on a book by Nicholas Sparks. It has this theme of Alzheimer's in it. There's also a scene with Jenna Rollins, which is really, really, it's very powerful. It shows sundowning, which is something that happens to about 70% of those with Alzheimer's. It happens at dusk where they become highly agitated or paranoid or fearful. It's a really hard thing for family caregivers to go through. So not that we want to necessarily watch that in our entertainment, but it's so well done and it doesn't Believe me, this is not a downer movie. If anything, what you're going to feel from this movie is the power of love. This is a really inspiring story about how a lasting love and a, and a really supportive love story can really play out. I highly recommend that. Now, there's two other things I want to recommend. One is a documentary on Alzheimer's called Alive Inside. And by the way, I'll have links to all of this on our episode guide on caregivingclub.com. But Alive Inside, fantastic documentary about what music can do. It is, it's like a miracle. If you haven't heard of this or seen this documentary, I highly recommend it. People who are in nursing homes are in this documentary and they spent years non-communicating, almost catatonic and music from the era when they were younger, like in their twenties, all of a sudden they get up, they dance, they sing with the songs. It's amazing. It's amazing to watch. And if you don't believe that, watch the 60 minutes episode with Tony Bennett, his wife and his son are also interviewed. And so is Lady Gaga, who obviously recorded with Tony Bennett, but they recently did a benefit concert. And of course, Tony Bennett's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease recently. And throughout this episode and this interview with Anderson Cooper, Tony wasn't very responsive. He wasn't very engaged. And then his piano player came in and played songs and he was on it. He was Tony Bennett that we know. So again, it shows you the power of music. I've got a link to that 60 minutes episode on the episode guide page on caregivingclub.com. So go check that out. It's really inspiring. We have on the podcast today, one of my favorite people in the whole world. And I'm very honored and lucky to call her a friend and a colleague in caregiving. And that is Joan London, who was the morning TV show host for Good Morning America for many, many years. But since then, she's done even more miraculous and wonderful things. She's an author. She's a speaker. She has done a lot of different programs around healthy living and aging well. I'm just really excited to to bring you this interview with Joan London today. So let me tell you just a little bit of background before we dive into the interview. So over the years, I've actually had the honor of interviewing Joan several times. She has a caregiving story to tell. She was a caregiver for her brother who had diabetes type two, as well as her mother who had dementia. And both of those were long distance caregiving situations where she was on the East Coast and her family and loved ones were on the West Coast. But she's also a breast cancer survivor. She's also all about, you know, as I said, healthy living and self-care. And, you know, her latest book, I'm going to hold it up for those of you who are watching this on YouTube so you can see the cover, is Why Did I Come Into This Room? Um, Candid Conversation on Aging. And I have to tell you, this is hilarious. This book is so funny. Joan 
dives into so many wonderful stories and and she really breaks it down as a gerontologist would it, between biology and our bodies and psychology and you know what we're thinking in our minds and also the social side and the soulful side of life. So it's really wonderfully done. Some of the stories, I'm just going to quickly share little snapshots with you. She tells a story about, you know, we've all worn spanks and you know how they roll up on your thighs and they bunch up. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. So Joan says, well, you know, at this one event she talks about, she just kind of went commando. So you have to read that story. It's so funny. But she also talks about things like hot flashes and brain fog, which come with a certain age for many women. One of the stories I really loved is she said she keeps postponing her doctor's appointment because she knows she's going to have to step on the scale and she still wants to lose a few more pounds. So she keeps kind of pushing it out, which is something I could totally relate to. But anyway, it is a wonderful, wonderful read. She talks about end of life and how her mom actually before she died had planned her funeral and what she wanted to wear or what she wanted to be buried in and also had written her eulogy. And she did that in her fifties, but it's just a really great read for anybody out there who might be struggling and is looking for at least a little humor to keep you going. It's a really, really great book. And as I said, Joan is just so wonderful and so generous. You know, I did this interview with her. It was about an hour and a half interview. And I did it for an article that I wrote when her book came out, but I called her up and I said, listen, I'm, I'm launching a podcast and you know, would it be okay if I use some of these great excerpts? And she said, yeah, that would be wonderful. So she's just a, a wonderful human being and a great person. And this is a great book. So without further ado, here's my interview with Joan London. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Joan. How are you? I am terrific. How are you? It's been a while since we talked. It has. And I, I have to tell you, thank you so much for making time today and for sending me the advanced copy on your book. I absolutely loved it. So much of it, I felt like. I know, everybody says, oh my God, it's me, it's me. (laughs) Exactly. So I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your time today. So thank you for for making the time. You know, it's funny because I I had written a number of books with a co-author, Laura Morton, and she's terrific. But when it came to this book, I I called her and I said, let me, I want to meet with you. I've got this next book I want to write. And I sat and, and told her all about it. And I was obviously passionate about it. And interestingly, it had started, I started writing this book and researching it like five years ago. At the time, it was called Live Younger, Longer. Mm-hmm. And, then the, and then I couldn't, I just couldn't keep going on it because it just wasn't sitting right with me. And I finally realized that's not the point. Right. I don't want to stay younger, longer. I want to stay strong and be my best at any age that I am right. in the moment. So I explained this to her and she looked at me, she said, I'd really like to help you on this, but I'm super busy on several other books and I, I can't do it, but you can do it. Mm-hmm. Start writing the book. And so I did. And literally at that moment, when I really focused on what do you want to do, you know, it kind of probably really the turning point probably was when I was fighting cancer. And you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes a crisis in our life right. to actually make us start thinking more seriously. I would have to imagine that most women are like me. We don't really understand how our body works <laughs> and what these changes are. The more I started reading and learning, the more I started understanding that these are changes that come naturally, that come biologically decade by decade. And yet probably each one of us experiences them as something that's just happening to us. 
Right. And most of these things like hot flashes and expanding waistlines, et cetera, they're embarrassing. Yep. And if we talk about them, in essence, we're, we're admitting that we're old, that we're getting, <laughs> that we're aging. So we tend to just carry them with us. I talked to a number of doctors, the gynecologists say, every time a woman comes in here and I ask her how she's doing, she says, fine. <laughs> then when I press her, because I know that she's, you know, in her late fifties and her late sixties. And I say, wait a minute, do you find that you're leaking sometimes? You don't quite make it to the bathroom. Do you find that you're having difficulty sleeping? Are you having any pain or discomfort with sex? Then they'll say, oh yeah, I am. Yeah. But they won't bring it up. So what happens is that women suffer through all of these annoying little nagging changes that are biologically age appropriate. Well, and, and what, yeah, and, and it what makes I, us worry. I, what I loved that you did in the book is you do take kind of some of these taboo subjects that we don't like to talk about because they are embarrassing. But I loved, for instance, the Spanx commando story where, oh. I mean, <laughs> but it's hilarious. And I'm sitting there visualizing you, as you said, talking yep, to yep. all these famous, wonderful <laughs> VIP people, you know, and, and yep. I thought that's so real. And I think sometimes humor helps us get past yeah. that stigma. I made a decision at the beginning of writing this book that I had to do it with humor. And I've used humor a little bit in my other books, but never like this book. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was sitting across from Laura, this co-author, and she said, and Joan, you're funny. Like, you can't talk about aging without being funny. So go ahead and like, just be completely honest like you always are in books. And that's one of the things I've done. I've always been to say or authentic is kind of the understatement of the year. I've always just divulged stories. If I'm going to write about something, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a doctor. I'm sharing. Mm-hmm. I'm sharing what's happening to me, what I've learned about it, what I've learned we can do about it, and saying, how about you? Mm-hmm. You know, almost as though I'm sitting right across from, you know, the woman who's reading. And that's exactly how I felt. I felt like, yeah, and I, oh, I did it in one reading, but, you know, but I felt like we were having a cup of coffee. When I really learned the concept that exercise was going to help my cognitive thinking, mm-hmm. it totally changed my view of exercise. Right. I used to only think of it as, I got to exercise so I can lose some weight. Right. I can fit into the in the right jeans. size I should be wearing. <laughs> and then as I started researching this book mm-hmm. and I learned what happens when you do cardio, the oxygen and the nutrients and the blood going up to your brain and that it creates new neurons which attach to the central system and all of a sudden you have better cognitive thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean forgetfulness is probably the thing that scares every one of us the most. Right. And to, if I learned those things at 25, I think we'd all be like these amazing, healthy people at 65. Well, and, and I love what you touched on in the book because you brought up the Harvard adult development study, which has been going on since the thirties. It's the longest study on yeah. what makes us live longer, healthier. And yeah. you touched on it relationships. That's like the yeah. secret sauce, right? That to me is the secret sauce. And it's one that a lot of people don't know. And you saw that I divided the book up into mind, body, soul. Mm-hmm. And it just made it easier for me to address, you know, how our body functions in that middle part. And in the end, all those things that are 
I look at them like the silver lining of mm-hmm. aging, the stepping back and feeling like you have the right to take that moment to look at your life, be proud of your accomplishments, but also take a look at how you've treated other people mm-hmm. and how do you want to be remembered. And I also want to touch on the three things that are these three factors, according to not only those Harvard researchers, but pretty much all gerontologists, Mm -hmm. the three things are the most important predictors of how successfully a person will age. Mm -hmm. And those are staying engaged in life and having good relationships, good social connections, and finally continuing to learn. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand how important social connections are or why they are important. Mm-hmm. But having those friends that you can talk with, that you can get up every morning and know that are there in your life to be there for you, that you go places with, that you do things with. I didn't collect a ton of really close relationships throughout my life, pretty much because I whizzed through my early schooling, like I was on a fast track, and I guess I was. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a lot of different colleges, and I just didn't do it the regular way where you go to a school, you live on a campus and maybe a sorority with girls for four years. Now, I saw the world, (laughs) right? (laughs) And I loved every minute of it. But it really wasn't until I settled down in New York and started working that I really made my very, very best friends in life. And You know, just recently, a few of us got together. We we have a reunion every year, those people that worked at Good Morning America Mm -hmm. from about 1975 to 1995. Mm -hmm. We get together the second week in December every year, about 150 of us. Wow. Everybody is everywhere else. I don't think any of them work at Good Morning America now. Right. But that is how close we all were. We traveled the world together together. It was very different back then, you know, just, I mean, yeah, the ratings affected us, but we weren't so, we were focused more on being a family that worked together to bring the news and bring and do a good show. And it reflected by the fact that we were number one. Right. But I don't think we were number one because we were watching the ratings. I think we were number one because the way these people worked together and the fact that we still get together every year speaks to that. That's that sense of community that is so great. Right. Well, I want to, and first of all, I would just want to thank you for referencing gerontologists. Going back to oh. your thing about lifelong learning, I am getting my master's this May in gerontology from I'm USC. so jealous of you. That's <laughs> on my bucket list. That's what I want to do. Oh, it's where are it's, you studying? It's at USC. You can do it all online. So that's how I, I was saw able that. to get through it. It's been fantastic. So you're right. Lifelong learning gives you this new zest, you know? Yep. And yep. at my age at 56, you know, I should be looking at, well, what am I going to do for retirement? Are you kidding? I'm looking at how do I expand my knowledge to be, yep. you know, relevant and to be useful and valuable for the next 30 years or whatever. You know, that's why I didn't just talk about the changes in the body. That's why I wanted to do part three. The fact that this is our silver lining. That if we know that, you know, we're in our 60s and maybe, you know, a lot of people, almost everybody works for a company that's going to make them leave and retire. Mm -hmm. So instead of letting it happen to you, which I talk about all throughout 
that third part of the book, don't let life just happen to you. Plan your life. You got to think ahead. It's up to us to write that next chapter. We're the, we're the ones with the pen in our hand. So I really wanted to encourage people. By example, you know, I talk about the woman who was the lineman for an electric company. Right. And I actually went and looked it up to see, like, she's a lineman? Like, what, what is that? And sure enough, that's a person who works on high electric wires. <laughs> and, but she was going to be forced to retire. So she was going to school to learn and getting, getting her certification to be an EMT. And she was excited, like really excited that, you know, this day was going to come and she was going to have that pivot point. And instead of being a lineman, she was going to be now an EMT. So instead of having life happen to her and having like, oh, my God, they're making me leave. And what am I going to do now? This woman was incredibly excited about how her life was going to change as she aged. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like use examples like that so that somebody could, you know, like a a hook, I think giving them real people stories and examples lets them kind of think about it in terms of their own life. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, the majority of people right now are, are these boomers who are approaching their sixties and they don't want to retire. Mm -hmm. Not to mention, it's not a matter of wanting to retire. (laughs) All of a sudden, they think to themselves, wait a second, people are living into their 90s, like 65 to 95. Oh, my gosh, that's 30 years. Right. Like, I financially can't retire. Right. And so, you know, that that reality hits them, and it's a scary reality. And so I thought that in my own inimitable way, (laughs) (laughs) I could help them think about this by reading in the book, the need to make plans, the need to stay engaged in life. Mm -hmm. Like that's the number one predictor Mm -hmm. of aging successfully. Mm -hmm. And I'm asked quite often, like, how long do you think you're going to be doing all this? I mean, the honest answer is I can't imagine not doing it. Right. I mean, it's not that the thought of having to continue working scares me. The thought of not working really to me is more right. scary. Right. Well, it is I mean, really sure going to reach, right? It's yeah, not work. It's not work with me. It's yeah. not work, you know? Right. I mean, I have been able to do one thing. And I also think that aging, which is also kind of maturing mm-hmm. and it's thinking about who you are and how you're making a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that can be raising an incredible family. It doesn't have to be, you know, discovering a new pharmaceutical drug. Right, right. But that kind of maturity and that kind of aging, I think that that gives us, it helps to guide us. Mm-hmm. And for me, it also helped me focus on the question, well, what do I want people to think of when they think of Joan London? When the House Ways and Means Committee called me a couple of weeks ago and said, would you come to Washington and give testimony on the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act. Mm-hmm. Now, that wasn't a gig. I wasn't being paid for it, but I thought, oh, my gosh, like, here's a way to really walk my talk. Yeah. And so I said yes and, you know, started doing the research and got my testimony together. And it was incredible being there in Washington, you know, not just seeing how 
laws are made and how policy is mm-hmm. developed and changed, but actually being a part of it, part right. of the process. Well, and so, what a great voice for caregivers, Joan, who don't yeah. get enough attention, I don't think, from our policymakers. And who, and who fall into debt and poverty and lose their homes because they're taking care of a loved one who absolutely needs them. Right. And if they miss work days, they lose their jobs. There's no compensation. We are only one of two countries in the entire world that doesn't give paid leave right. for, for you know, having a new baby or taking care of a loved one or getting over a, a medical issue of your own. Right. It's us and I think New Guinea. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of sad. <laughs> well, and what, and, and I'm sure you brought this up in your testimony. What I, what I have been a little bit, I've had consternation, I should say, over some of our lawmakers, because while we definitely need it, you're absolutely right. We're way behind the rest of the world. There's so much focus on new parents. And I feel like, wait a minute, what about the yep. people who are caring for an older parent? Because we know now there's going to be more people caring for older parents than, than oh. young children. And the births are down. Right. Births are actually down in this country. And as I as it kind of came out in, in the congressional hearing, that's actually a concern. It it needs to be a concern by us. However, the need for caregiving is going to grow exponentially. Right. And one of the facts that I found from the Department of Health and Human Services is that half of those people turning sixty five today will have some kind of disability in their lifetime that will require care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you think of that in terms of how many American workers are going to need to have time off mm-hmm. and they're going to need help, they're going to need a support system to take that time off either for their own personal medical care or for the care of someone else in their life. Mm-hmm. So we're already in the middle of a caregiving crisis which is going, I mean, I think this is the next crisis to hit this country. Well, we need so, voices like yours. And I think yeah. that we, need, we need to come together as a group. The one thing I've seen is that caregivers don't necessarily have this force because we're all doing it on our own, not reaching out, you know, not yep. talking about it. And we're and, almost uncounted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and and thank you for doing that, by the way. I I think that's fantastic. Absolutely. Maybe at some point I'll get to interview you about all of that stuff. But let me go back to, you talked about making plans. And so in this conversation of caregiving, and I love, by the way, the fact that your mom wrote her own eulogy and you added to it and you recommend everybody should do that. I love it. I, I sat down and started thinking about it. But have you... Have you had that family conversation with your own family about your wishes for long-term care and even end of life? Yes. And, you know, I I hadn't really had them to the extent that I should have had them until, interesting, like just before my brother passed away, I had gotten an elder lawyer there in Sacramento, California, where they live, and she had sat down with them in fact, my brother was too sick with all of the complications of type 2 diabetes, and she came to his home. And she at least got in order all of the important papers I needed, the durable powers of attorney, the advanced health care directive, the HIPAA release. She had gotten together a lot of those. And in doing that, she had even found out that my brother, who had been in the Navy, wanted a military funeral. Mm-hmm. And she also found out that he wanted to be cremated and put into the 
coffin with my dad. Now, I never, ever, ever would have known that had I not arranged for that elder lawyer to sit with them. Yeah. Now, and then my mom, believe it or not, my mom wrote that eulogy and that obituary (laughs) when she was, I think, maybe in her late 50s. I I wrote it in the book. I figured it out. I went back. She actually dated it. Uh So I could, I knew she wasn't old, but we had gone through my father's death. One day we were just sitting around and she said, Hey, you know, I want to make sure that you guys say the right thing for my (laughs) bomb voyage party, bomb voyage party, mom, you know, my funeral. (laughs) And she wrote it out and she said, I want this in your files. And it's, it sat in my files. Right. For a long time, because she didn't die till she was almost 95. Right. But when she did, I took that out. And it was such a comfort. Yeah. And, you know, you usually have to do those things in this moment of crisis, in this moment of heartache. And you can barely even remember everything that a person stands for. But I encouraged everyone in this book to do it, not just because I'm a control freak. (laughs) I did it because. I heard Stephen Covey do this on stage, and I was backstage. I was going to go out and speak next, and I heard him go through this, and there must have been 25,000 people in this huge. We were in, I think, in maybe New Orleans or Atlanta, but in like the big stadium where the, you know, the basketball players play. It was like an incredible audience, and I mean, I look, I peeked out, and everyone had their eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Like he commanded this huge amount of people and literally visually took them to their own funeral. Yeah. And I said, I want to talk about this because to me, the importance of visualizing that and taking yourself through that process and then writing your eulogy, it's not so much because you're going to take control, although I think everybody should do it. And I think everybody should not feel bad about taking control of how they want to be remembered. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, it makes you think about how will you be remembered? Mm -hmm. And to me, that was really the crux of how I wanted to close the book. Well, it was really powerful. And the way you described that, by the way, it was mesmerizing just reading it. I can't imagine what it was like actually being there. But it was fantastic. And and by the way, I, I have to just mention too, I love the fact that your mom wants the St. John and the Chanel bag. Yeah, yep, absolutely. <laughs> I thought that is uh, perfect. I love that. And she um, got she got it all. How do you find your me time? What is it that's just for Joan? And then how do you find it? You know, everybody says, well, yeah, I, I, I'd like to do that, but I just don't have the time. So tell me what you love to do just for you. And then how do you make that happen? I have two things that I just love to do. One is reading. I'm a voracious reader. And you know what? The whole, all those years I was at GMA, I didn't read like I read now. I, ha- I, d- I read what I had to read. I was constantly reading research, research, research. Now I go through books like crazy and I love them. And I love to be taken to another place, another time to slip into their world, to care about the characters when you do that, you completely let go of this world. Completely. I just find it to be the most incredibly relaxing thing to do. And I'm equally as completely focused and relaxed when I do jigsaw puzzles. Mm-hmm. My husband will tell you this. He'll, she'll say, 
I, in fact, I'll sometimes start one on the dining room table is big, big glass dining room table. And pretty soon I'll have like five of them, five <laughs> 1000 piece puzzles all. And at some point I have to come to the realization that I have to break them all up and put them all back in the box. Mm-hmm. But when I'm working on one, I'm completely involved in putting that picture together of whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when I never would have done that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I used to have this sense, maybe it was because because I was going through life at about a thousand miles an hour. I always had the sense that the concept of relaxing mm-hmm. was a selfish concept, mm-hmm. one that I should almost be ashamed of. And like, don't let, I wouldn't want to let anybody catch me right. relaxing because what would that say about me? Right. And, you know, seriously, probably it's through the writing and researching of books like this that I've learned how important that is mm-hmm. to unplug and relax and recharge. Mm-hmm. And even now, I must admit, I sometimes will. If I hear somebody coming, you know, near the dining room, I'll run out the other door so they don't catch me doing my jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God, she's at that again. <laughs> so my idea of finally when I do retire is to be able to unabashedly and unapologetically be able to read and do my jigsaw puzzles for as long as I want. I love that. I love that. Well, that. <laughs> is my retirement. <laughs> I love it. And that's your me time. And you know, you and I both love bookstores. In fact, if Barnes and Noble goes out of business, which is the only oh bookstore God, left, I'm going to cry. It's been great talking to you again. I know, me too. I would love to stay in touch, of course. And I, I probably Absolutely. have Absolutely. Well, let's do. Welcome back, everybody. And as we've been talking about, it's National Family Caregiver Month, but it's also National Alzheimer's Awareness Month. We know that over 6 million people in the U.S. have Alzheimer's and 11 million additional Americans are caregivers for those people. And I'm so excited to have our next guest because she's actually a really dear friend. (laughs) So yes, we are colleagues and we are in business and and, uh, we do some work projects together, but she's also just a really dear person. So welcome, Brooks Kenny. She is the general manager of Brain Guide and also the executive director of Women Against Alzheimer's. Brooks, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Sherry. It's great to see you. And it's just so fun to think about our journey together, thinking we first met over 10 years ago because of caregiving. Exactly. It's so <laughs> fun to be here now in this in this new, exciting endeavor that you're doing with your podcast. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being on. And yeah, I think back, oh my gosh, we've known each other for so long. I feel like I am getting old when I think about, oh my gosh, Brooks and I, what? I won't give the years out, but it's been a long time. You don't time. need to give the years out. <laughs> Um, So, Brooks, first of all, we've been asking people, where are we talking to you from? Because we know we're talking to people all over the country. Where where are you talking to us from today? Yeah, I'm in Kensington, Maryland, which is a small town right outside of Washington, D.C. I'm about 10 miles from the city line. So it's a beautiful fall day. Wonderful. Oh, great. Love to hear that. So I want to start first. I want to take a step back before we dive into Brain Guide and have you tell us a little about the Us Against Alzheimer's Network and Women Against Alzheimer's. 
Sure. Well, Us Against Alzheimer's is a patient advocacy organization. We've been around for 10 years, and we really are focused on conquering the biggest challenges in Alzheimer's disease. It's a really complicated issue. And when our founders, George and Trish Bradenberg, began this organization, they, in their wisdom, knew from day one that they needed to address those communities that are most impacted by the disease. So as you said, 6 million people are dealing with Alzheimer's today. Those are just the cases we know about, right? We know many more cases probably exist that aren't documented. I think, isn't it like 50% of the cases out there are probably undiagnosed right now? It's actually even worse than that, Sherry. It's 60% of people 65 plus is the estimate, which is really a startling statistic. And unfortunately, the news doesn't get much better when you think about women and communities of color. Women are twice as likely to have Alzheimer's disease. Women in their 60s are more likely to have Alzheimer's than breast cancer. African-American and Latinos communities are more likely to have the disease and they're less likely to get a diagnosis. And by the year 2030, less than 10 years from now, 40% of all cases of Alzheimer's will be among Black and Latino Americans. So there is a lot of work to be done to ensure that people get information and access to support and detection and diagnosis so that we're not leaving anyone behind to this disease. So when we think about our work at Us Against Alzheimer's, our work really falls into four kind of buckets. One, we're very much focused on earlier intervention and early detection. We know because of stigma and lots of other reasons, people are not getting diagnosed early enough. Number two, we're very focused, as I said, on health equity. You know, we need to ensure that those populations at greatest risk are getting the support that they need and that there are policies in place not only for people living with the disease, but for caregivers. So paid leave is a big topic that we're focused on. Number three is we want to speed treatments. You know, we know that this community deserves more options when it comes to treating Alzheimer's disease. And and in addition to treating, you know, thinking about what we can be doing in the diagnostic area as well, where there can be new innovations. And then lastly, we continue to survey our members and our community and constituents through a group called the A-List, we really want to provide a voice for people living with the disease. So often when we think about Alzheimer's, we often will hear from caregivers, which is fantastic. And those voices, I know many of them are listening today. And we also want to hear from the people that they're caring for, because it is a real long journey. And so we're trying to continue to lift up those voices in our community as well. So those are our four priority areas. And it's just, it's just a really hopeful time in in this space. And so, you know, we're working hard every day to make things easier for people. Yeah. And I love that. And I love the fact that your organization also has a lot of specific groups. So you've got your African-Americans against Alzheimer's, your Latinos against Alzheimer's, youth against Alzheimer's. So there's all these different groups coming together, you know, taking a look at how those those different populations are being affected. And you hit on something, I think that's a theme today, and that is that, you know, women are certainly more affected by this disease, both those who have it, but also the family caregivers that we're talking about. So let's dive in now to what was the premise 
for creating Brain Guide, which you're going to tell us about, but let's talk first about what brought us to creating Brain Guide. Yeah, such a great question. And I'm, I, if I could stand on a soapbox right now, I would. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, we've been going around the country talking about this work, and I can't believe how shocked people are and that this statistic that I'm going to repeat, you know, 60% of cases go unrecognized. Most often when we do diagnose Alzheimer's, we're doing it in a crisis or we're doing it in a later stage, you know, a loved one wanders, a loved one falls. And this really has to change. You know, if we were diagnosing cancer in stage three, the patient advocacy community would be up in arms, right? I mean, we would never accept that, but somehow we've allowed Alzheimer's to kind of fall off the list. And when we looked at the complexity of the diagnostic journey, and it is complex, providers are not talking about this very often with their patients. By the time you get to a neurologist, it might be too late or too late for early treatment. And Primary care providers don't often receive the proper training on how to observe cognitive decline or engage in those risk reduction conversations, right? Right. There's a whole issue there with providers. On the flip side, we know from history, if you look at public health, when consumers, and we know women are a driving force here, when consumers start to feel empowered and engaged and they go to their provider and say, something's not quite right. I want to have a conversation. I want to check up from the neck up. We know that that consumer demand will start to drive some change. And so when we were thinking about Brain Guide, we felt like the, the place where we could have an impact is empowering consumers to take charge of their memory, to come to a site that was free accessible, available in English and Spanish, take a simple memory questionnaire, and then we give them the tools to bring that information to their provider. We want, simply put, we want these conversations to happen earlier. We want yeah. people to think of their brain as a vital organ. So when they go for their annual visit, they are able to talk about their brain health, just like they might talk about their heart health or any part of their health and wellness. So it really was the driving force is we want everybody shifting to the left, so to speak, and having these conversations sooner because it's, it's terrible what's happening right now. You know, well, people are just living in in silence and shame and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And you, you hit upon something and I've heard you say this of, of course, many other times, but I love that, you know, get your checkup from the neck up. We tend to focus on what's below the neck and we know a lot now about our health. You know, we have become more empowered, educated consumers about our own health, but we really don't know about brain health, how the brain works, how it's so instrumental in everything and what are kind of the issues. And, and, you know, you touched also upon the provider community, the physicians, there's only been one drug approved by the FDA in the last 20 years to maybe try to slow the progression of this disease. And the sad part is a lot of those 
drug therapies that are out there right now really only work when you're in those earlier stages of the disease. And as you said, most people aren't learning, they have it until later. So I think this is, this is why we want to really empower our listeners and everybody to think about, you know, even though there may not be a cure, because I'm going to ask you a question about that later, but there are still things that you can do if you get an earlier diagnosis. And we change the trajectory of breast cancer as women by prevention, right? And detection. So, so tell us, tell us about how Brain Guide works. I'm really fascinated. You guys have launched this year. So it's been available now for a few months. What are you seeing in terms of what information or what are your visitors doing most when they come to the site? Sure. Well, yes, it, we launched at the end of March and you can access Brain Guide by visiting mybrainguide.org or you can call 855-BRAIN-411. And when you get to the resource, you can take a memory questionnaire and you can take a memory questionnaire for yourself. Or if you are caring for a loved one that you see often, you can answer questions on their behalf. And both of the memory questionnaires, Sherry, are based on validated assessments that are used in the clinical setting today. So they we have license to use them and we've adapted them to be accessible via a web bot or a voice bot. When you're done completing the questionnaire, our algorithm generates a tailored set of resources specific to the answers you provided. So we might give you specific information about screening, detection, and diagnosis, what to expect at your next appointment. We might give you information about brain health and the steps you need to do to keep your brain healthy. We might give you a tip sheet on how to raise the topic with your provider or with your loved one. So there's lots of information, lots of time that's been spent to kind of figure out how to curate that information. You also can just go to the website and poke around and look for content. You know, there's plenty of content there as well, and also links to trusted resources. You can sign up for the Brain Health Challenge, which is a 30-day Brain Health Challenge, where every day for 30 days, you get an email in your inbox with another tip on how to keep your brain healthy. And, you know, we have just been blown away by the response that we have received. We've had over 140,000 people take the memory questionnaire. 80% of them are taking it for themselves, which is pretty interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, right. 80, that, that's a lot of people that are basically- but that's good. Saying, I need to check my memory. And, you know, we're really happy to see that. And among the caregivers that are taking the questionnaire, 90% are scoring poorly. What does that tell us? You know, we know when people are coming there for a loved one, they are definitely noticing changes. And so we try to get those folks to resources as quickly as we can. We're also partnering with US Aging, which is a national organization that has a call center. So folks that want additional support or help, they can have access to a live person as well. And, you know, we're, we're just getting started, but we're really excited about the need that we're fulfilling. Sure. And, and I love that us aging actually just to give a little bit of information to our audience. So those are the area agencies on aging. There's usually an office in every county across the country and on a lot of different cities. And so these are the boots on the ground folks that can help you with a lot of different resources, not just in Alzheimer's certainly, but in all your caregiving needs. And the fact that you guys are partnering with them is fantastic because that really is getting into the local, 
ground level, which is where we know all the caregivers are, are looking for help and and resources and services and things. So this is so fantastic. And you've talked a little bit about all of these things. What I would like to know, Brooks, is we talked earlier about, you know, an early detection, earlier diagnosis. And a lot of people I know I've talked to have said, but why do I want to know that I have this disease or my loved one has this disease when there really is no cure? The drug therapies out there, if you don't catch it in the early stages, and even with that, maybe they only slow the disease progression by about two years or so. What would be your answer to those people? So such a great question. I would say that, you know, it's obviously always someone's choice, right? It's a conversation between a patient and a doctor. What I would love for your audience and and really people everywhere to embrace the idea that the earlier you detect decline, the better, because there are things you can do to reduce the speed of decline and also just to reduce our risk in general. And it really does allow for you to plan. Nobody wants to be thrown into a chaotic caregiving situation, right? I mean, I even know when when my mother-in-law was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, there was a lot of chaos in those early days. And we now know she was suffering for a lot longer until she had that diagnosis. But, you know, we spent a lot of time getting her house in order, making sure she was safe, making sure we had the right local resources. And when you have a diagnosis earlier, it allows your family some breathing room to do that, right? It allows you to think about the future. What do you want? Do you want to be, do you want to have care coming into your home? Do you want, do you want to go into an assisted living down the line? You know, we, you need to let all your doctors know what's going on for medication management. You know, there's just so many things that you're able to get your finances in order. And there's just all of that that just makes life easier. I mean, I, through this work, I am so humbled by the people living with this disease that I've been able to meet. One of the women is named Doreen and she was gracious enough to share her story with us at the beginning of our work on Brain Guide, and she was actually one of our testers and continues to engage in our work. And I always think about her when I get asked this question because she's thriving. She's six years into her diagnosis. Mm -hmm. She has her daily routine. She has a support network of friends. She lives in a safe place on the ground level. She volunteers. And she will tell me, you know, yes, there are moments where I get down or I might not feel like myself or I might forget my words, but I have put things in place to thrive for as long as I possibly can. So Doreen is really my motivation whenever I get asked that question. And I know it's scary. Listen, nobody wants to talk about memory decline. Nobody. I mean, it's not an easy topic, but we also don't want to be isolating ourselves and dealing with that alone, we really, we really need to get support as soon as we can, just like you would for anything else, right? You know, you wouldn't want to wait to get treated for cancer. No, we're only at the beginning with treatment. This is a groundbreaking, I mean, regardless of where you fall out as a person considering this treatment or a caregiver, that's a discussion between a patient and a doctor. 
But at the end of the day, this innovation is going to spur more innovation and there's more coming in the pipeline. So that's a very, we're in a really hopeful place as it relates to Alzheimer's. Well, and I think to your point is we want to have more conversations, right? Within our families, with our doctors, with our kids on how we might be able to prevent this. We know that a lot of things that we can do for heart health now are very beneficial for brain health, like keeping your high blood pressure managed and under control, you know, moving, keeping your BMI and obesity levels down, all of those good things for our hearts are good for our brain. So I think the conversations and the communication is so critical. And we want to just really encourage people to not be afraid of it, right? That we can take this on and we can, we can conquer this. We've conquered other things. We can conquer this too. I could not agree more. And I mean, obviously I'm a, I'm a little biased, but you know, when I talk to my kids about sleep, then they had a good night's sleep. I tell them, you know, that was so good for your brain. You know, when we eat salmon, I tell them this is good for your brain. I want, and you know, they're a little annoyed because I, I probably do it too much, <laughs> but you know, I want them to grow up thinking about that, you know, thinking about that as a vital organ. And so it's really important that we, we embed these conversations into our day-to-day lives. So it's not as scary. We also know it's a lot easier to talk about brain health than it is Alzheimer's disease. And so if that's a way to enter into the conversation, I encourage people to use that. Like that makes sense to me. You know, we don't have to use the A word if you don't want to, we can simply talk about brain health and the importance of living a healthy lifestyle. That's an easier way to, to get into it. And that's, that's fine too. Right. Well, hopefully we've ended on a hopeful note. I don't know if you have any last comments to kind of empower. And as we know, you know, we know that Men and women have to engage in this equally, but we also know that women tend to be, as you've said before, the chief medical officers of their family. So we want to empower them to really think about not just their older loved ones, but as you said, children and ourselves. Any last thoughts, Brooks? I would just encourage people to start a conversation wherever you can, with whomever you can. Don't be afraid to talk about brain health. Don't be afraid to go to mybrainguide.org. Just give it a try. We have to normalize this. And I do think it starts with women, but we want women to bring everyone along. And I encourage folks to really take this month as an opportunity to get started with your brain top of mind. Awesome. Well, we're going to include that website again. It's mybrainguide.org. We're going to have that in our episode show notes. So there'll be a link so that people can easily find you. I also want to do a quick shout out because we like to support each other. And your organization has just launched Brainstorm, which is your own podcast all about brain health and Alzheimer's and really drilling down on those specifics. So I know our listeners will probably be very interested in that. Oh, thank you so much for mentioning that. Yes, it's uh, twice a month on Tuesdays and our board member and founder, Meryl Comer, who is a New York Times bestselling author, is she's just amazing. She was caregiver to both her mother and her husband for more than 20 years. And she leads these really compelling conversations. And so it's Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's. And we would love for your listeners to tune in. And we'll give a shout out to you on our next episode. Absolutely. And say hi to Meryl for me. Well, Brooks, thanks again. It was so great to see you. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome to be with you as well. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. 
next segment is on wellness in home design and how can we help our older loved ones age in place, which is basically means living healthier, happier, and longer in our homes as long as possible. Before we talk to our next guest, let me share some recent news headlines that are trending in home design and home care. So first of all, Sherwin-Williams announced their color of the year. It's called Evergreen Fog. It is a beautiful, gentle, gray-green hue of paint that they say evokes rebirth and reemergence. And there's nothing better that we need right now coming out of this you know, pandemic than this rebirth and reemergence. And it's a really calm color. It makes you feel more connected to nature. I'm so in love with it that I'm definitely going to be redoing my entryway in this color, maybe a few other rooms as well, but it's just, it's really, really gorgeous. And one of the things I love about Sherwin-Williams is that they have really brought health and science into their mixology of how they create their paint hues. They have a senior living paint collection. They have a living well paint collection. This is part of their newer collection. And I wrote an article about this and I wrote, it was based on an interview I did with Sue Wadden, who is their director of product design at Sherwin-Williams. And it's really interesting, I think, to read. And I think also understanding color psychology is really important because as we age, our eyesight changes, how we see different hues, contrast. The other thing that Sherwin-Williams does is they really integrate odor resistance and bacteria resistance into all their paints. So there's a lot more behind these beautiful colors than just the paint chips that you see in the store. So check that article out. It actually is something I wrote for Thrive Global, but we have a link to the article on the website at caregivingclub.com and it's on the episode page for this particular podcast episode. And then also since, you know, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease. We know that we're trying to keep our loved ones who have dementia at home longer. Sometimes that's a little tough, but what do we do that we can redesign the home to make it safer, to make it a a calmer and better environment for somebody who might have Alzheimer's disease? Well, interestingly, the Alzheimer's Foundation of America just came out with a guidebook, a design guidebook on what they call the dementia apartment. And it's really interesting. So you can check that out. We have a link again on our episode page. Again, I also wrote about this and I also have some of my own insights and tips that I give you in an article I wrote on designing for dementia. And you can find that on the snug home part of our website at caregivingclub.com, which is where all of our articles that are related to living well in our homes longer, that's where all of those articles reside. But we'll have a link on this episode guide page. So we hope you check that out. And without further ado, let's talk to our next guest. Speaking about Alzheimer's and designing safer homes, our next guest is George Netcher, founder and CEO of Safely You. And he is here to talk about one of the biggest issues for older adults living at home, which is falls. But first, let me give you some quick facts. 12 million Americans over the age of 65 live alone in their homes. And and most of those are older women. We know that almost half of women age 75 or over are living alone at home. We also know that 80% of those with Alzheimer's live at home with a spouse or another family member, and one-fourth of Americans age 65 or over each year have a fall in the home, 
which then requires them to go to the ER where we have about 3 million visits to the ER of older adults every single year. So, wow, that's a lot of really harsh facts, but we've got some good news for you because with all of that, my next guest, George Netcher of Safely You, is here to tell us how we can prevent those falls in the home. So, George, welcome to the Caregiving Club on air. Thank you for having me, Sherry. Before we get started, one of the things that we always like to ask our guests is where we're talking to you from. Which city are you in today? So I'm in the Oakland area. I actually live in Berkeley, California. I'm from Houston, Texas originally and really feel like a Texan and I'm watching the Astros in the playoffs right now. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you're you're covering some of our favorite places, Texas and Northern California. I'm, I'm down south from you. I'm in Southern California today. So Fair anyway, enough. thanks for joining us. So George, this episode is really focused on celebrating our family caregivers and also Alzheimer's Awareness Month in November when this episode airs. And what I really loved when I was doing my research about you is your backstory, your origin origin story on your family and what you've been going through and, and, you know, all of that is really what helped you create Safely You. So give us a little bit of that story about your family. Yeah, happy to. I think it's unfortunately probably a familiar story to a lot of folks, um, knowing just how many people are impacted. So in my family, I think just like in many others, my mom's mom had Alzheimer's and has now passed, unfortunately. My mom's big sister is kind of late stage with Alzheimer's and it feels a bit inevitable that my mom, who's kind of the next next one in line, is going to be there. So really, the reason I started the company was after seeing just how hard it was on my mom being that sandwich generation and worrying about her mom and worrying about her big sister, but also seeing that she's the next one in line. So I felt like I had you know, a couple of precious years here to try to build what I would want for my own mom before she got to that same point that I saw with our loved ones. Yeah. And, you know, you bring up something so important. We know that most of the Alzheimer's cases are women. We don't know why. There's still a lot of research and science behind that. But we know that more women in our lives are going to be affected with this disease in the future. So Safely You is really focused on preventing falls and particularly within our dementia population. So tell us how you got started and what Safely You is trying to do in terms of falls risk at home. Yeah. So how we got started, started as my PhD research at UC Berkeley. So I started working in the computer science department back in 2014, really with the goal of how do we use some of these new tools from artificial intelligence that are powering things like, you know, Amazon Alexa, self-driving cars. We've gotten really good at this kind of pattern recognition to be able to recognize speech or recognize things, you know, in the world around us. And it felt like there was this very clear opportunity. I can show you my application essays from back in the day. It's like, there's got to be some way that we can use these new tools to support folks like my mom. There has to be some way that we can kind of marry these things to support a population that really needs more help. I mean, you you named some of the sobering statistics, but you know, around Alzheimer's in general, we know that it's something like one in three over 85 have Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. I think it's up to one in nine over 65 now. It's one in five Medicare dollars, single most expensive disease. There's just so much need and there's so little attention really paid towards it, at least from a technology perspective. When you think about what we do, the whole focus is really around giving a voice to folks that can't necessarily advocate for themselves. And, you know, if we look at the other end of life, you know, things like infant support and infant monitoring, there is so much more technology and innovation in that space. 
because guess what? Like a lot of 30 year olds have kids that age, right? Um, <laughs> but not a lot of folks are thinking about, or maybe we as a society don't love thinking about, you know, the other side of life, despite that there's so much need. And yeah, folks, just like my mom, who, you know, in time lose the ability to advocate for themselves and, and need that, need that support. You really hit on something I think that's so important, and it's a big discussion here at Caregiving Club on Air, and that is that we have put a lot of effort and policy and funding and programs into childcare, but we all know that over the next you know 20 years, we're going to have more parents that we're caring for than children. And so kind of having that shift across a longer lifespan is really critical. We know that if you have dementia, you have balance issues. Tell me a little bit why you focused on the falls risk in particular. Yeah. So unfortunately, it's the number one cause of hospitalization and lots of other issues. There's a bunch of sobering statistics around falls. And another one is that I think it's something like within one year of having a hip fracture. I think the lowest number I've seen is there's like one in five people will die within one year of having a hip fracture. I've seen numbers that are more like one in two, depending on what research you're looking at. So it's clearly a really tough challenge. And it's one that for folks with Alzheimer's, the statistics there are that they fall about twice as much as folks that are cognitively healthy, where we have folks who have this very high rate of repeat falls, um, where they can't necessarily learn from how they fell last time. So they fall again and again in the same ways. And what we've seen through our program, we're today supporting about 1,500 falls a month all over the country. And what we see is that only about 5% of falls result in an injury of any kind. That means that we can kind of understand what's happening and give really good expertise about what kind of changes we can make. We have 19 out of 20 times to make changes, reduce risk, often before this person is having you know, that serious fall. And I think that's one of just the big misconceptions around falls, that we think every fall is really serious. but Actually, you know, by the time your loved one has a really bad fall, they've probably been falling repeatedly. And if we can know about that right away and be able to make appropriate changes, there's a lot of good we can do for everyone. I love this because, you know, when we think about Alzheimer's or dementia, we immediately go to the memory and we worry more maybe as family members about the loss of that memory and how do we manage that. But what you're saying is, you know, there's there's the physical risks of falling as well. It's something we don't think a lot about. And the prevention, as you said, I mean, we do know that, you know, multiple falls over time are going to lead to a lot of other health issues. And, and I know that you at Safely You, you address both the falls in the home, which is where we're really focused, but also falls in, you know, memory care and, and, and senior living. Tell us a little bit about how Safely You works. So if I'm a family yeah. caregiver listening right now, how, what are you going to do to help me? How does it work? How do I engage with you? Yeah, what do we actually do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So basically the way the, the product works is we offer cameras, which only record video when we've detected a fall. And so the kind of critical piece there is that we want to give a voice to someone that can't necessarily advocate for themselves. And so we don't want to be able to see all the time when they're changing in their rooms or whatever else. And they wouldn't want us to be able to see that, but they would want to be able to tell us if they hit their head or not or how they fell and so that we can kind of help support them. So we detect if somebody's had a fall with super high accuracy using these new AI tools. We generate on the order of one false alarm every two years, which we take huge pride in. And then we only keep the time they're on the ground along with usually about 10 minutes before and after. So you can see how they went to the ground and then no other video is kept so that we can know about it right away with super high accuracy and without them needing to wear any kind of device or anything like that. We can see what happened right away, where it turns out that about half the time, 
the person actually went to the ground intentionally. They got on the ground to pray, for instance, but they couldn't get back up on their own. They can't reliably communicate what happened. So, you know, using senior housing as an example, if they find someone on the floor and it's an unwitnessed fall, quote unquote, unwitnessed, then the policy is usually, well, they could have hit their head. We have to make sure they're safe. And so we're sending them to the emergency room, which is really hard on, you know, your loved one often results in setbacks and condition during COVID times. It's like the worst place to send somebody. Um, yes. We had it in my own family. You couldn't go in with your loved one. So you could have someone, you know, your mom. 20 feet away from you, you're in the parking lot and they're in the waiting room and you don't know if they're sitting in the corner with a brain bleed and no one's attending to them and they're just slumped to the side. Yeah. And just the fear factor of being in a hospital, I think for most of us is not a comforting situation, right? Mm -hmm. And so here you are having this scary situation and now you're alone inside. It's just the whole thing is really, we need to figure that out. I think a lot better. I think you're right. I just talked to a family caregiver the other day and she was talking about getting the pendant, you know, getting the personal emergency response systems or devices, as we call them, you can wear them on your belt, you can, you know, wear them around your neck, but we know there's, you know, sort of limitations with that. And so yeah. tell me how safely you really kind of solves that problem much better than somebody who has to wear a button that they have to push in an emergency. Yeah. So we're very focused on the needs of folks with Alzheimer's, dementia, cognitive impairment. So we're really not intended to be, Hey, I'm a healthy older adult and I'm able to push a button when I fall, for instance, or I, you know, folks with Alzheimer's, those things really just don't work for because they don't remember what this thing is, why they need to keep it on. So they don't reliably have it with them or whatever else. And so we're really focused on, you know, folks that are moderate to late stage and really are kind of passing that point where they can reliably tell us what happened and things like that, um, which we know is so hard on family members. And so we have the technology to kind of know about it, but we also have this whole remote care model where we have our own clinical team that reviews every video if it's a kind of an optional add-on, but we've had 100% opt-in for it, which is still a bit mind-blowing, where basically our own team can look at what happened and give you guidance on, hey, this person is falling in this way. Here's the types of things you can think about changing. So it might be this person has muscle weakness on their left side and they're not remembering it. And so when they're getting out of bed, they're getting out of bed on the, on the wrong side and they're ending up going to the ground. If we just push the bed up against the wall, then they're going to have to get out of bed on the, their stronger side and we can provide a more kind of supportive, safer environment for them. And I love that because, you know, we talk about home design, home modification, and what you're really saying is look at the environment and optimize it. And that's Absolutely. really what you're doing. And I also love the fact that you've really emphasized the privacy factor, because I know for a lot of older adults and even a lot of family caregivers, you know, that kind of invasion of having a camera on you all the time is something maybe they don't want. And you've really yeah. thought that through. So yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I think it's, that's what happens when you're building it for your own mom. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's the, that's the, the secret sauce behind all of this. Well, George, you know, we're kind of wrapping up and I just so appreciate your time today, but so if I'm a family caregiver, I should either, if my mom's in memory care, I should be asking them, Hey, do you have you know, this tool that I know can help. But also if I'm, I have my mom at home or my dad at home or my grandparent, and I'm looking to make them safer and prevent those falls, tell us, I would come to your website. And then is there like a setup fee or a equipment fee and then subscription every month? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you can go on our website and see, um, we even have a page that specifically shows, you know, if, if you're thinking about memory care, the locations in your area that use us so you can know and so definitely go on the website, see there is a setup fee, which will change by area. So it's not just listed right on the 
website because there may be different labor rates and whatever in the areas. And then there will be a subscription fee as well, which will depend on if you want just the technology or the recurring services as well, the clinical side. So if you go on our website, you can see all of that. And then even if you just want to, what I was going to say is, even if you just want to drop us a note, we find those so encouraging that we're here because of our own families and so many of us have close loved ones with Alzheimer's. So just hearing people's stories and it's so rewarding to say, Hey, thank you for what you're doing and whatever. That's like the reason we wake up every day. <laughs> so yeah, right. Emails on there. It's info at safelyyou.com. And we would love to just hear any that those positive words of encouragement mean so much to us. George, it's so encouraging to see, you know, I can say this because I'm older, but see younger generations really engaging and helping out our older population. So thank you for being one of those champions. Oh, I mean, I think it's it's the double-edged sword of how many folks are affected by Alzheimer's is on the flip side, what actually gives me hope, right? That the more of us impacted, the more of us are going to be working on it, the more chances we have to make life better for everybody else. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much, George, and, and good luck and congratulations. I know Safely Used done really great things, getting more investment dollars recently, winning a lot of awards. You guys are really doing some great stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your time today, Sherry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Once again, we just want to thank George Natcher from Safely You and just remind you that you can find all of their information on their website at safely-u.com. So that's safely-you.com. Welcome to our Me Time Monday wellness hack called Brain Health Boost, five senses workout in five minutes. As caregivers, we juggle a lot of balls in life. Sometimes our minds wander. Have you ever read a page in a book or an online article and not even realize what you read and have to go back and reread it? Do you check your email or text every few minutes? Is it hard to finish projects or tasks because you get distracted? Some people call this monkey brain, but I call it brain bounce. Your mind is bouncing around to so many different things that you're not really present and focused on tasks and people right now. We pride ourselves on being multitaskers, but sometimes we need to be more in the moment. This five-minute Me Time Monday wellness hack will help you learn how to focus. It's similar to how we slow our breathing and concentrate in meditation or mindfulness programs. We give you five fun things to do with your five senses to calm the mind and train your brain. So we know that vision loss can affect our overall health and even lead to a risk for Alzheimer's disease. As we age, the muscles that control the size of our pupils actually shrinks. In fact, at age 75, we need three times more light than we did at age 25. And the lens on the front of our eyes has less flexibility and it hardens, which makes it harder to bounce those images to the retina which is why we all reach for our reading glasses starting in, you know, our 30s and our 40s. And because of the daily technology we use and the close-up screen work we do, all this is causing even our children to have nearsightedness earlier in life. It is also causing older eyes to become more strained and dry because we're not blinking as often. So we need to exercise our eyes every day. So just, you need to stop every 20 minutes from doing your work and stare at things that are at least 20 feet away for 20 seconds. It's called the 202020 program for eye health. So take one minute right now and visually 
Take in the wonder of the distant world around you. Scientists have proven human beings cannot thrive without touch. We think of touch as human touch, which releases oxytocin, which is the feel-good hormone that makes us feel love and warmth and bonding. But touch can also be something that we touch like our clothing or lotion or a warm puppy. Scientists also know that people who are stressed tend to touch their face more often throughout the day for comfort and for clarity of thinking. But whether it is human or something tactile like touching a soft sweater or a cup of coffee or even squeezing a stress ball, touch creates emotions that are essential to survival, such as comfort, empowerment, or relief. What four things can you touch right now in your immediate area? Do you have objects that can help create the feelings you need? Warmth, strength, relief, comfort. Have them at your fingertips for quick, touchy-feely breaks throughout the day. And don't forget the hugs. They help us heal and have hope. So go ahead, take one minute, and reach out and touch something. Simon and Garfunkel wrote one of their best-selling songs, The Sound of Silence, in the 1960s for the soundtrack to the movie The Graduate. But we know sounds, not silence, actually make us healthier. You know, it's songs and music are a powerful therapeutic tool. And when singing along or even playing an instrument, you're giving your brain a full workout where every region in the brain is engaged. This is why music therapy has been used to spark memories and movement in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's patients, and also helps reduce pain and improve flexibility during physical rehabilitation after surgery. The digital technology we have in our daily lives, the overwhelming noise pollution (laughs) demands that we do a daily digital detox. So take one minute right now and listen to the sounds around you. Can you think of three sounds or do you hear three different sounds? Stop and smell the roses. Remember that old saying? It meant take a pause. We know scent can evoke a lot of strong memories. Think of the famous French novelist, Marcel Proust, and his famous Madeleine cookies. We also know a loss of scent is typically tied to neurodegeneration, and it's one of the early risk signs of Alzheimer's. Different scents like lavender, which calms, peppermint, which stimulates, or rosemary, which improves memory and cognitive performance, are all being used in healthcare today. Take one minute, and what do you smell? Maybe open a window, or better yet, take a step outside. Are there fragrant flowers? Maybe a faint sea breeze, or a mountain pine scent, or something else that just evokes those memories and triggers certain emotions and feelings. Go ahead and stop and smell the roses for the next minute. So we saved the best for last, tasting something. (laughs) Remember the movie City of Angels where Nicolas Cage teaches Meg Ryan to savor the taste of a pear. It's sweet and juicy, but also she's feeling that soft sandpaper kind of feeling on her tongue. Well, this is how the French eat. And if there's one thing the French people know, it's how to eat well without gaining weight. The secret is this. They take very tiny bites and small portions and they eat slowly and socially. 
In fact, we know we eat faster and we eat more when we eat alone. And actually taste is really 80% smell, or at least that is how our brain interprets it. Scientists say there are five main categories of taste, saltiness, sweetness, bitterness, sourness, and savoriness. Of these five, studies do show that sweet tastes increase our pain tolerance and distract us from distress, like, you know, maybe getting a shot, but all in moderation and slowly go ahead and have that comfort food in tiny bites. One square of dark chocolate. Here I come. Take one minute to savor your favorite treat. So we hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday wellness hack. We know if you practice this weekly or better yet, even daily, your brain will love you. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on-air podcast will feature a new Me Time Monday wellness hack. And you can also check out more great wellness articles from my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, Weekly Wellness for a Wonderful Life. And also find these articles online at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling, and I wish you all to take care and stay well. Thanks, everyone, for joining us at Caregiving Club on air. Remember to send us your emails at podcast at caregivingclub.com. And don't forget to include your first name and your hometown. And you can also learn more at caregivingclub.com. We look forward to having you back for our next episode. Until then, take care and stay well.